Parents, if you feel free to help your kids get settled in Trinity Kids, and then when you're able, there are Bibles on the table as you walk in. Please have God's Word open before you so that we can give attention to it. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be reading at verse 15. If you're willing and able, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. The grass withers and the flowers fade in a changing world. God's Word stands. Let's give our attention to it. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Paul says. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Paul lays out his argument in Galatians. in verses 17 through 21, because there are Judaizers who have said, there are people who are watching Paul's confrontation with Peter back in verse 11 through 14, and they are saying, hey, Paul, you talk all about being justified by faith, but listen, if you're justified by faith on the basis of grace through faith, then what Moral responsibility do you have to be good? In fact, if you're justified by faith and you're still a sinner, doesn't that make Jesus, doesn't that make make Christ a servant of sin? And Paul says, no. So let's lay out his argument together and let's think about it for the few minutes we have before the supper this morning. I'm going to do so with three points. Living by works of the law is a performance trap. And living by justification by faith is a performance trade. And the result is a far better performance. Living by works of the law is a performance trap. Living by justification by faith is a performance trade. And the results are a far, far better performance. So let's look at these together. First, I want to look at justification by faith. Because if you're, if you're here with us for the first time, let me give you just a two-minute recap of where we've been. In verse 14, Paul confronts Peter to his face for his hypocrisy and his racism because he is eating with Gentiles. And the Jews sent from James come to Antioch 
And when they come, Peter sees these guys whom he fears, and he begins to back off of eating with the Gentiles. And Peter says, listen, Paul, we just decided back in Jerusalem. We just saw, this is Galatians 2, 10 on through verse 13. We just decided that you are not justified by the works of the law, by certain dietary restrictions or being circumcised as was the specific case study in this uh, first part of the book. You're not justified by works of the law. You're justified solely through faith. So why are you backing off of eating with these Gentile, as the Jews would say, sinners? Because you're afraid of what they'll think of you. You're justified by faith. And Paul says to Peter, you're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. And Paul says that there's a technical term for that in verse 15, if you were here last week. Every field has technical terms. It's just a way of saying with one word something very compact and dynamic, explosive. And the word that Paul used back in verse 15 was justified. And we said last week, that to be justified means what? Does it mean that your behavior has changed? No, it doesn't. It means that there's a change in view or a change in status. There's a change in perception of you from the eyes of God the Father. So let me give you an example. Just this week I read about um, a young man who is a student in a high school. Do you hear about this? Who just clobbered another student. I mean, just knocked him out. And, of course, as you would expect, the principal rushes in, the coaches jump in to try to break these guys up. But when they get there, there's a student who's just knocked out cold. And the student who punched the other student, you know, they look at him and they say, you're, exp- you're out of here. Why would you do such a thing? You're gone. They take him to the office. And as he's going to the office, he says, I... I know I deserve to be going, uh, taken to the office, but would you please just look in the coat pocket of that young man? And so they look in the coat pocket of the young man who's knocked out on the floor, unconscious, and sure enough, they find in his hand a gun in his coat. So, immediately, what do the authorities think when they see that? Here's a guy who just not clobbered another kid, and in his coat pocket is a gun with his hand on it. Now, did the kid's behavior change? No, he still decked him and knocked him out. But what changed about that student who did the punching? Their view of him totally changed, didn't it? Because once he was the aggressor. He deserved to be expelled from school. Ah, and he justified himself, didn't he? And he did an excellent job in doing so because immediately the perspective of that student has changed. Same behavior, a different view. That's what happens when you're justified by faith in Christ. When the Father looks at you out of his electing grace, nothing that you did deserved his attention or care. He changes his view of you so that he doesn't see you, doesn't see Blake, sinner deserving of condemnation. He looks at me and he says, he sees Jesus because he sees me covered in Jesus' righteousness. And that, Martin Luther, the old reformer, says, is passive righteousness. 
It is a righteousness that is not earned. It is received. So the behavior may be exactly the same, but the view of you is completely different. Now, what Paul says in verse 16 is that that is true of Christians, that you are not justified by works of the law. You are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. That you have a passive righteousness that has been offered to you, that has been given to you. And if you believe, your Father's view has changed of you. Question, did you do anything to deserve that passive righteousness? Did you earn it in any way? No, Paul says, it is by faith alone on the basis of God's sheer and sovereign grace that his view of you has changed. So, Paul says, if that's true of us in verse 17, and we still find ourselves to be sinners, does that make Jesus a servant of sin? You hear this all the time, right? If you're saved by grace, what's the point in being good? It kills your moral responsibility for being good. Have you heard that before? And Paul's answer is, no, it doesn't. Not at all. Because Christians are people who are not enslaved to the law of God as if they could keep the law in order to please an infinitely holy God. Living by justification by faith is a performance trade. In other words, Jesus' performance record is credited to your account in the eyes of the Father towards you. And all of your sin, all of your undoing, is given to Christ. He took it upon himself on the cross so that God the Father looks at you irrespective of your behavior and says, he's mine, she's mine. I see them as a child, no longer as a slave to sin. Are you with me so far? Living by justification, by faith, is a performance trade. Now, Paul says to these Judaizers, It does not make Christ a servant of sin because living by works of the law is a performance trap. There's nothing that you can do to please God. Nothing you can do. You are approved by God on the basis of sheer grace. You do not obey the law in order to get God to change his view of you. That can only be done by a sheer and sovereign grace. So what's the point of the law? It's a good question. This week I heard on the radio about a guy whose name is um, Albert Victor. He has a PhD in plant genomics and he studies the very narrow, at least I would think it would be very narrow, um, area of plants called flesh-eating plants, carnivorous plants. Have you heard about these, right? Venus flytraps? He was introduced to them when he was in junior high, and he's just been fascinated with them ever since. So it led him to go get a PhD, and he teaches up in New York now at the University of Buffalo. There are 670 different species of flesh-eating plants. And Albert Victor, in this interview on the radio, says this. I want you to listen to this as a way of reflecting on what is the role of the law. He says that once bugs fall in 
to these flesh-eating plants. They don't make it back out. Instead, they get stuck in a liquid that breaks down their exoskeletons in flesh. You see, they have extensively modified leaves, these flesh-eating plants, capable of attracting and trapping and digesting small animals, even the size of rats. They attract potential prey by nectar, by coloration, and by scent. <laughs> now, these are flesh-eating plants, and what Paul is saying is the law, if you use the law to try to justify yourself before God, it is like a fly climbing on top of a Venus flytrap. You're attracted to the law because we're modern Americans who like to earn things. Of course you're attracted to it. It like begs you to come and obey it, doesn't it? But have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? Like if you seriously try to keep that thing, it doesn't take you but maybe five minutes to realize you've already failed it. It attracts you by its color and its scent and its it looks appetizing, but if you try to nourish on it, it will eat you. It will digest you. It will absorb you for its own nutrients. The role of the law was given to us never to be our nourishment, always to tell us about God's holy character and to remind us that our character does not match up to his. It was to be, as it were, a kind of carnivorous plant for us. It's attractive we want to try to obey the law because by obeying the law, we feel like God will love us more. It looks beautiful, it looks edible, but it will absorb you, it will digest you, and it will leave you for dead because the law was always meant to be diagnostic. When Christ comes, Christ fulfills the law. And so Paul says, you don't need to try to keep the dietary or the ceremonial aspects of the law any longer. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled those. He was the perfect Israel, perfectly fulfilling every Old Testament law, 370 uh, carnivorous plants, 300, 600, uh, 670 carnivorous plants, 613 Old Testament laws. Christ kept every one of them. So when you face the law as Christians, you look at the ceremonial law and you dare not keep those lest you make a mockery of Jesus because he has fulfilled all of those. Only he was the clean one. You can't possibly be clean by all those dietary laws. So we don't keep the ceremonial law anymore. But the moral law, how do you keep the principle of that moral law? Well, you should obey those lest you make a mockery of Christ. Because the only way to get an honest heart in you, Jesus says, is by leaning into those laws, but you do so in light of the fact that you're justified by faith in Jesus, not in order to be justified by faith in Jesus. Galatians, like a jackhammer, talks about one very crucial doctrine in the Christian life, and that is justification by faith alone. And on that point, you do not keep the law in order for God to be commended to you by your performance. It is solely by grace. And there are those who, if, let me give a word picture. If, if the, imagine a train track and imagine that Christ is the engine 
and you are the train car, and you are coupled to that engine to get you moving, as it were. You are coupled to that engine by faith. That is what couples you to the engine. But there are some of us who see that train track, and we say, no, 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 get the engine out of the way, and you raise that train track up, and you treat it as a ladder, and you lean it against the doorway of heaven, and you try to climb every rung of that track. That was never how the law was intended to be used. It is a train track for you to be coupled with Jesus who perfectly fulfilled those laws to get you to your destination. It was never meant to be a ladder pulled up off the ground and slanted against the doorway of heaven to climb a rung to in order to earn God's acceptance or to get in by yourself effort. And herein is one of the greatest dilemmas of the Christian life and one of the great truths of the Christian life. That you are at the same time justified before God your Father as holy and righteous through the work of Jesus Christ and yet still a sinner. Your view in God's eyes, his view of you has completely changed and yet you what? You still struggle with sin. Martin Luther had a phrase for this. It's a great phrase. It's called simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously, it's Latin, simultaneously just and yet a sinner. And he shows us that when we understand ourselves to be simultaneously justified and yet sinful, it actually allows us to have a whole different approach to life so that our actual living is indeed better. And it's all relative to where you are in your own individual life and growth with gifts and struggles that you have. Obeying Christ in light of being justified by faith allows you to do so in a much freer, much more glad and joyful way than trying to obey the law in order to get God to love you. Haven't you experienced that in your own life? Listen, you can have two people who are doing the exact same thing. One of them is operating out of shock. One of them of trying to get God to love them more and just being overwhelmed with their failure against the law. And one of them is overwhelmed out of gratitude because of what Christ has done for them. So here's a quick commercial to help you see very clearly those differences. Exact same transcript, exact same words out of their mouth, and deep, exact same behavior as it were, but one is operating what? Out of a tremendous sense of gratitude and thankfulness. And the other one is operating out of the shock of having something destroyed. Many of you have lived your entire Christian lives in fear that God is gonna reject you if you don't obey everything he asks you to do. And friends, you don't yet know the gospel. And I know that because I don't, listen, the gospel it is, it is slippery, not because the gospel, you know, when things are slippery, either the object can be slippery or your hands can be slippery. 
The gospel's not slippery, but my hands are slippery, and I drop things all the time. And Paul says, you will fall either to the right or to the left of the gospel. He says to Peter, you have to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. If you fall to the right, you find yourself to be legalistic, overwhelmed by trying to keep all the laws to get God to love you. Makes you a very fearful person. If you fall to the left, it makes you a very licentious person. Well, I can just do whatever I want because God's view of me will never change. And Paul says, no, you've got to walk in line with the truth of the gospel because the result is a far better performance. Let me give you some examples. Let me give you some examples because living by the gospel allows you to have a much more deeper, much more broad way to apply the good news to your life than applying the law ever could. Because there are some things about your life that the law would never apply to. There's thousands of different situations that you wouldn't know how to act unless you believed the gospel. So let's just talk about a few of them. I'll give as many examples as I can before we close. Aging, of which we are all enjoying. You have two different ways to approach aging. On the right hand, if you are a legalist, right, you approach aging and you grow more bitter and more angry right, with yourself because you've not measured up to the demands that you feel like you're capable of. Don't waste a minute. And you exhaust yourself trying to wring out life as though God is going to weigh your good deeds at the end of your life and judge you by those over against your bad deeds. Or on the other hand, you get angry and bitter, but not at yourself. You get angry and bitter at God because you aren't getting the life you thought you deserved. So on the one hand, you're angry and bitter at yourself for not measuring up. Or on the other hand, you're angry and bitter at God because you don't get the life you deserve. But the gospel shows us that you should, as you grow older, have a profound sense of gratitude. You're not bitter because you're not getting what you believe you deserve. You're actually thankful because you see that you are not getting what you deserve. You see how it works? Or let's take another example. Let's think about um, self-image. Like the gospel makes you humble, but yet incredibly bold. But if you fall on the right side of it, if you're licentious, what? It makes you, it makes you incredibly bold, but not very humble because you're always looking down your nose at other people because you, ah, I've done it. Look what I've done. You measure yourself by your performance. And whenever you fail to meet those standards, you're crushed. But on the other hand, you're incredibly humble, but you're not very confident. Why? Because you just don't want to offend anybody. And so you find yourself always deferring to other people or always trying to make sure that you walk in a politically correct way lest you offend somebody who believes something different than you. And you therefore, you can't be confident or bold because you really don't have much moral objectivity to stand on. But if you are walking in line to the truth of the gospel, it makes you unbelievably humbled because you did nothing to earn your salvation. And it makes you bold as a lion. Why? Because you know that your father approves of you. And so therefore, you can speak truth to love. And you can fight justice. And you can love those who are hard to love because even their rejection of you doesn't matter. Listen, your father loves you. And he, if God the father loves you, oh, may the world reject you, but you have his affection as his child. Do you see how that works? The gospel's application is infinitely broader than the law's application. 
Because the principle of the gospel is that you are, as Luther said, a justified sinner. And if you forget either of those words, accepted in God's eyes, yet still struggling over sin, you will fall off the line of the gospel to the right or to the left. Think of another example. Confrontation. When, you, when something is done to you, you've been wronged in some way, some of you will fight back and you will cut that person off and you will make them pay. And in some ways, it's, it's like it's good for you, but it's horrible for them, right? Or on the other side, you will, instead of confronting, you'll, you'll recoil and you'll just lick your wounds and you'll not confront and you'll back away whenever you've been hurt. And so in that sense, it may be good for that other person, but it's killing you. So either you're gonna kill them or you're gonna kill you. But the gospel actually says when you've been hurt, you're able to confront them in love. Why? Because you have a humble boldness that allows you to confront people. Because again, something greater than their affection for you is driving your motivation. And so, therefore, you're able joyfully to be able to speak the truth in love. Or you're really not speaking the truth. At the same time, you're able to love them, but love them with the truth. Or you're really not loving them. The gospel allows you to be able to take these situations and understand yourself as a justified sinner. Are you making the connections? All right, love about suffering. And then we'll close. Suffering. If you take suffering as a legalist, you will react the same way Job's friends did. And you will say, ah, I must be doing something that's causing the suffering. And you will just grow exhausted trying to figure out what it is that's causing this particular problem in your life. Or on the other hand, heap condemnation on yourself. On the other hand, you will react not like Job's friends did, but you'll react like Job's wife did and say, just curse God and die. But both of those ways of, of suffering just fuel your own bitterness, either in, about your own heart or your bitterness toward God. And if you've ever experienced suffering, you know that when bitterness grows, it just makes the suffering worse. What does the gospel do? The gospel allows you to say that in my suffering, I am sharing as 2 Corinthians 1 says, I am sharing in the sufferings of Christ, as 1 Peter 1 says too. I'm sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And in the midst of my suffering, I'm able to have deeper fellowship with my Savior and know that even though I do not know the purpose for it, and I may never know the purpose for it, this side of glory, I know that Christ is using it to help me be salt and light to the world. In the light of Christ's suffering, you then move out toward others who are suffering and you become a picture of the good news of the gospel to them through your own example and through your own endurance of suffering. The gospel, friends, is infinitely applicable. And being justified by faith, does it make Christ a servant of sin? No, 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 never. It actually makes you salt and light to the world because out of a profound sense of gratitude, you're able to move out and to joyfully do what Christ calls us to do. It's like the old hymn says, to see the law by love fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, 
changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. To see the law by love fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into a choice. Do you see how the gospel frees you up? Do you see how the gospel goes deeper and wider and broader than the law ever could? And Paul says, do not pull that train track up and slant it against the doorway of heaven as though you could climb it. The law is a carnivorous plant that will eat you. It is to remind you that Christ himself is the one who is the perfect law keeper. He is the clean one. As one uh, pastor, Sinclair Ferguson says, what this doctrine provides is the assurance that though Christian obedience is still imperfect, the believer is already a full member of God's people. It establishes in consequence the basis and the motive of love, of true obedience toward God. The teaching of present justification is therefore a central means whereby the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest, may be produced. A Christian is a person who has died with Christ, whose stiff neck has been broken, whose forehead has been shattered, whose stormy heart has been crushed, whose pride has been slain, and whose life is now mastered by Jesus. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Friends, please see that in light of the good news of the gospel, you can sing in joyful obedience to what he has called you to do. And his view of you does not change if you're in him. Are you? Living by works of the law is a performance trap. Don't do it. But seeing him who fulfilled the law is a performance swap, a performance trade. And it allows you to be the salt and light that Christians are called to be. See your Savior opening his arms to you and singing over you his love as you prepare for the table. Let's pray together.